Good morning, everybody. As you're finding your seats, uh, just a reminder, feel free to reconfigure the chairs to suit um, your family group that you're sitting with so that everyone can still stay distance appropriately. Um, feel free to rearrange the chairs, however, uh, whatever works best for, for everyone. We're going to start off this morning uh, by just reading. Um, and I'm going to read again, like we did last week, through the book of Jonah. Mike is going to come and, and continue our series in Jonah in just a couple minutes, but we want to just get a, a, a reminder of the whole story again. Uh, and I'm going to be reading in the, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. Last week I read through the NLT, the New Living Translation, uh, so it's just a bit of context there. The New Living Translation uh, is a translation that is considered more of a thought-for-thought thought translation. So it doesn't, um, it's not very literal with every single word that it translates. It tries to capture the whole thought or idea, uh, and that ends up resulting in a really uh, fluid English uh, translation that's easier to read uh, and has a bit of more of a dynamic tone to it. Uh, whereas other translations are on the other end of the spectrum, try to, then they try to translate every word exactly, literally, uh, as closely as they can, but Hebrew and Greek, especially the Hebrew, is a very different language than English, so there are, you know, some hard decisions to make when it comes to translating. The CSB is kind of different uh, because it's one of uh, the only translations that Mike and I have found to actually try to go somewhere right in the middle of that spectrum. So they're not hyper-literal, but they try to be as close as possible while still maintaining some sort of uh, fluid reading tone, so... All that said, we say this often, and it bears repeating that it's helpful to uh, compare different translations, whatever translations you can get your hands on. Uh, if you can't read the original languages, which is, is, is most, if not all of us, we can't read the Hebrew and the Greek. So it's helpful to compare different translations, which is why we're going to be reading through it in several different translations over the coming weeks. So if you want to read uh, along with me, turn to Jonah, chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. But the Lord threw a great wind onto the sea, and such a great storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart. The sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They threw the ship's cargo into the sea to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and had stretched out and fallen into a deep sleep. The captain approached him and said, What are you doing? Sound asleep. Get up. Call to your God. Maybe this God will consider us and we won't perish. Come on, the sailors said to each other. Let's cast lots. Then we'll know who is, who is to blame for this trouble we're in. So they cast lots and the lot singled out Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us who is to blame for this trouble we're in. What is your business and where are you from? What is your country and what people are you from? He answered them, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of the heavens, who made the sea and the dry land. 
Then the men were seized by a great fear and said to him, What is this you've done? The men knew he was fleeing from the Lord's presence because he had told them. So they said to him, What should we do to you so the sea will calm down for us? For the sea was getting worse and worse. He answered them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea so that it will calm down for you. For I know that I am to blame for this great storm that is against you. Nevertheless, men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't because the sea was raging against them more and more. So they called out to the Lord, Please, Lord, don't let us perish because of this man's life, and don't charge us with innocent blood. For you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. Then they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. The men were seized by great fear of the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me, but I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now, Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In forty days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd, or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Please, Lord, isn't this what I thought while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. 
And now, Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. And then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted, and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, he replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, you cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night and perished in the night. But may I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege it is to be here to study your word and worship you. Lord, I just pray that your spirit would uh, speak to us, that you would open our hearts to hear you and to see you uh, through the words of your scripture and Mike's words as he shares from your words. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, David. Last week, David took us through Jonah chapter 1, and if you missed that one, it should be online by now. Be, uh, be, feel free to stop by the website and check out Jonah chapter 1. He kind of talked about how Jonah is this upside-down book that really kind of messes with typical prophecy and typical stories about prophets. So this week, we're going to jump into chapter 2, and I'm curious as we start this morning, um, how many of you read poetry just for something fun to do? Some of you are like, I kind of do. I mean, I can see like the hands. It's really what you're saying is, well, either I, when I have to or every now and then I get in the mood for it. Isn't that about the way it is with poetry, right? right? Webster defines poetry this way. Webster says that poetry is writing that formulates a concentrated imaginative awareness of experience in language chosen and arranged to create a specific emotional response through meaning, sound, and rhythm. Now, now, not a lot of us read poetry, but we know what it is. But how many of you listen to music all the time, right? Then you understand poetry. Poetry is, or is bas basically, music is poetry set to lyric, set to a, a rhythm, set to music. So you kind of understand poetry a little bit, but I think you understand poetry more than you realize. I'm going to read you a very simple poem. Roses are red. Violets are blue. Sugar is sweet. And how does it end? And so are you. Well, thank you. That's very nice of you this morning. Now, it's a basic poem. What makes it a poem? Well, it could be the cadence. We even take the word violets and we make it two, instead of violets, we make it two syllables so that each line has four syllables. Roses are red. Violets are blue. So we have four syllables. So it could be the cadence. It could be the rhyme. The end of the second line and the end of the fourth line, the last words rhyme, and that can make it part of poetry. But 
in understanding this poem, your brain automatically does certain things. And you don't even realize it's doing it, but it happens all the time. When you read roses are red and violets are blue, these are both true statements, correct? Well, yes. I mean, there are other colors of roses and such, but there are red roses and there are blue violets. So you read those two lines and they're true. And it's setting you up for the precedent that the next two lines will be a comparison that is also true. And you see two things that are very similarly related, flower and a flower. Then you get to the second set of lines and your brain automatically is thinking whatever the next two things are, are also going to be related. So you read roses are red, violets are blue. You understand these are lines of truth and they're somehow related. You get to the second two lines, the, the third and the fourth line, second two, I guess, set of lines, and you read sugar is sweet, which is also true, right? And so are you. And therefore, the assumption is that you are also sweet, just like sugar is sweet. And there's a connection between sugar and you. But I know that if you licked yourself, it would not be sweet. So it's not necessarily a physical comparison of the sugar like it was with the flowers. It's now taking you into an imagery that paints a bigger picture of who you are and how you're perceived than just the taste itself of sugar. To say that you are sweet is to say that you have a sweet personality or that you have certain character traits. And you can take that phrase, sugar is sweet and so are you, and you can think of, how am I sweet? Poetry is designed to take a few words to get you to make some connections and then to branch out and to discover and explore it on your own. And in American poetry, we do this a lot with rhyme and with cadence, but that's not necessarily the only type of poetry, is there? There's poetry called haiku. Any of you familiar with haiku? Yeah, now when I was in school, I hated haiku because I never really got it. But it's really simple. Haiku is about the number of, of words, words per line. Um, it's actually, sorry, syllables. I got that backwards. It's syllables per line. So it's five syllables in the first line, seven syllables in the second line, and then five syllables in the third line. That's the only structure that there is for haiku. There's no rhyming. It's just the number of syllables. It's three lines, five syllables, three syllables. I'm sorry, five syllables, seven syllables, and five syllables. So five, seven, five in three lines. That's a haiku. So let me read you one and see what you see. Just listen and, and, and see what you catch in these few syllables that are here, 17 syllables. It's called October's Gold. Like crunchy cornflakes, gold leaves rustle underfoot, beauty in decay. That's a haiku. So what images did you have just then? I pictured my wife walking through the woods, stomping on all the crunchy leaves. Any of you like her? If, if there's a crunchy leaf, you have to step on it or a pine cone or something, right? So, so that image comes to my mind. You have that like crunchy corn flakes is those, those leaves and such. Um, golden leaves rustle underfoot. So they have this idea of the, the images of the colors of fall. Now, if you lived in a place that doesn't have fall, you probably wouldn't get this. Some of you are new to upstate New York. You're noticing the, the yellow, and you're going to see the reds and everything. So you get this imagery of the colors changing on the leaves. And then this idea of beauty in decay is taking a whole new meaning into that fall where things that were alive are now starting to appear to be dead, even though we know they're still alive, and that we're going into a season that's going to seem 
a lot less lively, Beauty and Decay. In this case, both poems, though defined by either structure or rhyme, they're different, but they give us enough details to help us get a bigger image in our mind of what the author is trying to present. And just as American poetry is different than Japanese poetry, Hebrew poetry is different from both of those. <laughs> I'm going to read to you, just for humor's sake, what one author calls a brief description of Hebrew poetry. <laughs> and then I'm going to summarize it briefly because their brief description is not really brief. Um, this will be in the notes online so you can go back and read it again. It's really pretty dense, but it's awesome. Briefly defined. Biblical Hebrew poetry is a non-metrical form of verse characterized above all by verbal inventiveness. <laughs> so it's basically freeform poetry. It, it's, it's not always metrical. It's not so many syllables. It's, it's not that way. A discernible poetic dictation and texture and concision, meaning it's very concise in what it does. This particularly lean style is characterized by short lines consisting of two to six words per line. So that's their boundaries, two to six Hebrew words. Now, one Hebrew word could be five in English, but in the Hebrew, it's two to six words per line. Lending the impression of a heightened, dense form of discourse achieved by bringing semantically important words together. So it brings words together that, that they want you to make connections with. As with other bodies of poetry, it routinely involves higher concentration of words and phrases with rare meanings or usages, bold ellipses, sudden transitions, and other stylistic complexity. That's the concise version of Hebrew poetry. And people have really tried to define Hebrew poetry over the years and have struggled a lot. It's, it's more of a free verse, but it has certain things that it does in comparing or contrasting certain phrases and bringing in unusual words or phrases so it sets a pattern and then all of a sudden something unusual pops in to make you go oh wait a minute how does that fit into this so that you can start to think a little bit differently about what you just read um, it relies on wordplay repetition of words comparison of thoughts or contrast of thoughts and all using as few words as possible unlike some pastors roughly one-third of the old testament is poetry one-third of it is poetry. And I guess the challenge for us is that we don't think <laughs> like the Hebrews did. We don't think like, like the Israelites would about poetry. And so we kind of have to retrain our brains to understand what's happening with poetry from a Hebrew mindset to totally get what's going on. And this morning, we're going to read and discuss a poem, a Hebrew poem. It's Jonah's Prayer. Jonah's prayer is actually a poem. And I want us to discover together. I've been mulling over this prayer, like when I say mulling, like really trying to figure out everything I can about it for the last at least month. And I'm still only scratching the surface of it. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to discover together some of the things that this poem is saying that might be more than just what you see on the surface of it, so that we can start to understand the way that we need to approach Hebrew poetry as we read our Old Testament. So I'm going to read Jonah chapter 2 again, and I want you to listen. We said that Hebrew poetry has 
thoughts that go together and occasionally odd words that stand out or phrases that stand out. It has repeated words or themes or concepts. So as we're reading, I want you to see what jumps out to you. Do you notice any repetition? Do you notice any patterns? Do you notice anything that stands out? And then I'm going to ask you after I get done reading what jumped out to you, and then we're going to dive into it together. So if you don't come up with the right answer, you don't get to leave today, or you don't get donuts next week. One or the other, we'll pick out, figure out what, what happens there. But let's read it together. Jonah chapter 2. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol, and you heard my voice. When you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me, and all your breakers and your billows swept over me, and I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck, and the watery depths overcame me, and seaweed was wrapped around my head. And I sank to the foundations of the mountains, and the earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. And as my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. And those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So as we read that together, we mentioned that all these stylistic elements, repeated words or thoughts that go together, um, all work together uh, in this poem. So what did you notice or what jumped out to you as I read that poem or as you read it along in your Bibles? Anything in particular? The ideas repeat. Yes. Yeah, you start out with two lines that are very similar and comparing, I prayed and I cried, I called and I cried, and you heard, and then later on he talks about that, so that idea repeats, there's other ideas that repeat as well. What else stood out? Anything? As either something you noticed that is consistent or something that's, that seems odd? Nobody wants the answer, huh? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There's a really bleak, desperate tone to this poem, isn't there? This overwhelmingness of it. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, we're going to talk about that, the vocabulary that he uses for that whole section there. It's just amazing. But yeah, overwhelmed. What else? Anything? He uses comparisons. Yeah. A lot of similes like this or using like similes, similes are like or as, right? What else? There's also a lot of metaphors, and we're going to talk about a couple of the metaphors later on. Um, metaphors are comparison without using like or as. So notice anything else? Like, no, it was a prayer. Okay. I have to be honest with you. Um, normally, over the years, when I've come to a prayer or a poem like this, I've kind of read it because it's God's word and then went back to the action, right? So you're talking about chapter one, he's running away from God and there's a storm and everything else. You get to chapter two, it's a prayer and you read it like, okay, so Jonah repents. Yep, yep. Actually, we're going to talk about that too. And, and then, okay, now we're back to the action again. He's on dry land. He's going to go preach and people change. So I kind of skim over the, the prayers and poems sometimes and focus more on 
the action. Honest confessions. But a prayer like this is an important part of this book. And if half, if one third, excuse me, of the Old Testament is poetry, we shouldn't be skimming over it, right? I'm just going to throw that out there. <laughs> it's all there for a reason. Um, so we focus often on the fish, and the fish is not a big deal. The prayer and the contents of the prayer, that's a big deal. So that's what we want to focus on. So one of the things that's unique about this that you may not notice right off the bat, and it took me a while to catch it, is that this prayer is a parallel to the Psalms. And what do I mean by that? This is a very unique prayer in all of Scripture in that just about every word of this, of this prayer can be traced back to one of the Psalms. I have a chart, actually, that I'm going to show you just to give you some verses. This will be online with all the text as well. But as you go down through those, those seven or eight, eight verses, excuse me, eight verses from uh, verse 2 to verse 9, you're going to see that there are psalms that relate to all of them, and you'll see the same verbiage over and over. It's almost like he read the psalms and he just took sections of it um, and put them all into one prayer. And it's really unique in that way. Often a poem or a prayer will relate to an Old Testament passage, another prophecy or a prayer or a psalm. But this one, like the whole thing, is just continually referencing other psalms that were written. To show you how this kind of plays out, I'm not going to go through all those verses because that would take like three hours, but just to show you how a Jewish reader would automatically hyperlink Jonah's prayer to the Psalms, I'm going to read to you two Psalms. And I want you to see if you notice similarities between these Psalms and the prayer of Jonah. Psalm 88, verses 1 through 7. Lord God of my salvation, I cry out before you day and night. May my prayer reach your presence Listen to my cry, for I have had enough troubles and my life is near Sheol. I am counted among those going down to the pit. I am like a man without strength, abandoned among the dead. I am like the slain lying in the grave, whom you no longer remember and who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest part of the pit, in the darkest places, in the depths. Your wrath weighs heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all of your waves. Isn't that interesting that as he talks about wrath, he throws waves into that. Again, this is visual imagery that's all throughout the Psalms. And, and Jonah is calling on them. Psalm 88, I'm sorry, Psalm, that was Psalm 88. Psalm 18, verses 4 through 6. The ropes of death were wrapped around me. The torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of Sheol entangled me, and the snares of death confronted me. I called to the Lord in my distress. I cried out to my God for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. You see any similarities there? I mean, this is all throughout the Psalms. Now, amazingly, this, the vocabulary is totally similar, but I want to go back to something David pointed out last week, and that is that the book of Jonah is the upside down prophet book. It's really like meant to shock you and to make you go, wait a minute, something's not right with this picture. In David's Psalm 18, he was being hunted down by his enemies, including King Saul at that time. And God did deliver David from Saul and his other enemies. So this imagery that David has of being hunted down and being in the in distress and being overwhelmed and calling out to God and being rescued was from his enemy Saul. 
Who's Jonah's enemy? What's that? Himself? God? Now, see, immediately you might go, okay, it's God, but is God really the enemy? Well, no, but would Jonah feel like that? So you're meant to automatically just start thinking through, well, wait a minute, something's not right with this. David cried out like this, and God delivered him from his enemies. Who's Jonah's enemy? What's going on here? And you start to say, he's his own enemy. He's this and this. And so immediately you have to start processing it differently than just what you read on the paper. And that's what the poetry is designed to do. I think that that's exactly what the author wants us to do. So then there's these connected words or images, which I think are just amazing and beautiful. So um, the waters, right? In verse 4, I'm sorry, I'll start in verse 3. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the sea, and the current came over me, and your breakers and your billows swept over me. So you have this idea of waves breaking over. So at this point, you can kind of picture him above water and the waves are splashing. He's in the middle of the ocean and the waves are splashing over him and the torrents are coming up, but he's still above water, right? And he's trying to survive, trying to survive. And then it says in verse five, the water engulfed me up to the neck, which is the Greek word, which is the Hebrew word nefesh, which also means life and soul and other things. So the water engulfed me up to my neck. The watery depths then overcame me. And you can picture him kind of sinking down and the seaweed wraps around his head. And so he goes from the surface of the water to just below the surface of the water. And I sank to the foundations of the mountains and the earth's gates shut behind me forever. And so you just have this vision and this imagery of just sinking and sinking, starting on the surface and going further and further and further down. It's beautiful. It really is. It's depressing at the same time. Um, The language is meant to take us someplace, to make us kind of experience a little bit of what Jonah was going through. You said it seemed like the desperation. There's there's this desperation and there's this, I guess, this feeling of helplessness that Jonah has. And he wants his readers to kind of get that feeling as well. But it's also making another statement, I think. The further down the prophet sinks, the farther he is from Yahweh. And this is important. He says that I've been banished from your sight in verse 4. And then he says that he's been put down in Sheol, and he's been taken down to the roots of the mountain or the foundations of the mountains. In Jonah chapter 1, God came to Jonah and said, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And what did Jonah do? He ran away. He said he he ran away from God. And then when he's on the boat and the soldier says, what are you trying to do? What what have you done? Why has this come upon us? And he said, well, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the God of heaven, Yahweh, who is the God of the, the sea and the dry land. And they were terrified because they also knew that he was running away from God. So what you're getting here is the completion of his running away. He started out by leaving the dry land and going to a boat, thought if I get into the boat and just hide in the bottom of the boat, I'll be far enough away. He says, just kill me, throw me overboard. He continues to get further and further and further, going from land all the way to the bottom of the ocean. And it's giving you this visual picture of just how far Jonah has gone from the presence of God. It's pretty cool. Pretty cool imagery. It's this idea that being banished from God feels like death 
gee, where does that sound? Where does that come from? And if you remember Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 4, gee, in Genesis chapter 3, when, when man and woman sinned, they were banished from God's presence. And the punishment from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was that they would surely die. The, the parallels between Genesis 2 and 3 of being punished by being banished from God's presence and the symbolism of that being equal to death carries over from Genesis all the way through to this poem in Jonah. Cain, when he kills his brother Abel, is banished again. And he said, this is too much of a punishment for me to bear. I might as well be dead. We get that same idea of banishment equaling death. So aside from the imagery of drowning and the peril of Jonah, we also have a deeper image that, of the death that comes from separation from God. Wow, I, I never caught that before. It's, it's really deep. That was a pun. All right, so it's masterfully written. So then we also have this fish, right? So there's a fish. The fish is like the bookends. Of, of this chapter here. Um, you have the great fish. Jonah uses that word great a lot. Um, he refers to the great fish, a great storm, and the city of Nineveh being a great city. Um, God sent or appointed a fish to swallow Jonah, and then God told the fish to throw him up. Jonah became fish vomit. Kind of cool. Another great image. I mean, you can almost smell what that would be like, right? What poetry is supposed to engage the senses. All right, anyway. So in all of this, the fish obeyed. And as you read about this fish, it's not so much that the fish was so big or all those things that people like to debate on it. But God appointed a fish, and the fish did the bidding of God. And then God commanded the fish, and the fish did what God said. And so again, the theme that carries over from chapter 1 to chapter 2 is that God is sovereign and in control of everything, including nature. He commanded the fish, and the fish obeyed. Now, here's another thought you could go with on this as you're processing through this. In chapter 1, the sailors worshipped and made vows to Yahweh, right? Their response, after the sea was calmed, was they offered sacrifices to Yahweh and they made vows. In chapter 2, Jonah did the same thing. In chapter 2, God appoints a fish, and the fish obeys God and does what God says. In chapter 3, God is going to command Jonah a second time, and Jonah is going to obey God and do what the fish did. It's kind of like Jonah's a, a half a step behind everybody else. Just something to process. I'm not saying there's a deep theological truth in that, but I think there's intentionality as far as it being there. Um. I think there's also some other bonuses in here. Even though Jonah was on the brink of death and far from God as possible when he prayed, God lifted him up out of that spot of deliverance and saved him. And it's a beautiful picture of what God does for us. There's an amazing story and lesson in that. So let's move on from the repeated words. I want to look at some unusual words, okay? Uncommon words. We mentioned that uncommon words are meant to make you things stand out. So he's in the water and you get that he sank down to the foundations of the mountains or the root of them. Any of your versions say root of the mountains? Anybody have that in their version? To the root of the mountains? Do you have that? Yeah, that sounds kind of weird. It's not a phrase we use, is it? Why would he throw that in? Why wouldn't he just say, I sunk down to the pit of the sea? Instead, he uses the phrase 
the root of the mountain. Why would he do that? Why would he refer back to the land again? Anybody have any ideas? Maybe he was never talking about the sea to begin with. Yeah, maybe. Start processing it. Think about it. So yeah, you're jumping to the New Testament for interpretation, which is a great thing to do. But yeah, Jesus referred to the, uh, the sign of Jonah and that he would be buried and then raised back to life. That he would be dead for three days as Jonah was. Um, that's in the New Testament. We're going to get to that later on, but Mike's already kind of, spoiler alert. All right, so um, it's all good. Uh, but yeah, but you have this idea of earth. He even mentions earth that, that, that he was basically like buried under the earth here. And you have this earth and mountain, roots of mountains imagery. It definitely is, is, goes along with the idea of death. And, and the word Sheol is also translated as grave. So is the word pit. Um, they, can, they can symbolize death in the grave. Um, but, but why mountain? And I think this is significant. The Garden of Eden was on a mountain. When God approached Abraham, it was on a mountain. When Abraham offered up Isaac, it was on a mountain. When God approached Moses and the elders, it was on a mountain. When the Ten Commandments were given, it was on a mountain with God. The presence of God is most often referred to as being on the mountain. As a matter of fact, the temple in Jerusalem was built on a mountain. And when he says, I, won't, I will see your temple again, but I've been banished from your sight, he's looking up at the mountain and he, as he's sinking down. And he says, now I'm at the, the foot, the foundations of the mountain, which is the furthest point from the top of the mountain. And so you understand just how far Jonah has gone from the very presence of God. It's not just that he's a little ways away. He's as far away from the top of the mountain in the presence of God that he could possibly be at this time. And he's using physical, visual imagery to get us to understand the condition that he's feeling inside. We wouldn't get that because we don't think of God's presence being on a mountain. This is one of those metaphors that we're supposed to try to capture throughout the Old Testament. And it comes out through this unusual phrase that we don't often talk about. In Jonah verses 2 through 6, it said, I sank to the foundations of the mountains, and the earth's gates shut behind me forever. And then you raised my life from the pit or the grave. Yahweh, my God, as my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you. To where? To your holy temple. So I was down here at the roots of the mountain, and I prayed, and you heard me all the way up at the top of the mountain. So let me just ask you, what does that tell you about God? No matter how low you sink, he can always hear you. There's a great application point if you're looking for one. What else does it tell you about God? He's everywhere. Yeah. Matter of fact, read Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. He goes on to say, you know what I think before I think it. You know what I say before I say it. And then he says, if I, if I try to hide in the depths of Sheol, you're there. If I try to hide in the darkness, darkness and light are the same to you. You're there also. David understood it in Psalm 139. And, and 
Jonah is portraying this through his use of, of visual words here. He still sees, no matter how far, you're never, to, you're never farther than a prayer away from God. There's no distance so great that God cannot hear you. So let me talk about another weird phrase that seems out of place. As you read those verses, verses 2 through 9, did anything kind of jump out to you as far as like, this verse just doesn't seem to belong in here? Any of them? Kind of just seem like, you know, the old Sesame Street thing, one of these things just doesn't belong here. I'm kind of dating myself there, but is there a verse in there that just seems like, this just doesn't seem like it fits? Verse 8. Thank you. Yeah, the idols. Where did that come from? There's no other mention of idols in the book of Jonah. Where did the idols come from? Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. They haven't been mentioned in chapter 1. And it's not idolatry that the Ninevites are being, uh, pers- uh, that they're being threatened by. It was their acts of violence, you'll find out as you read the Old Testament. They were s- crazy violent people. They have cave images and drawings of them like skinning people alive and decorating their walls with it. These were violent, wicked people that were being punished for their violence. And some of your translations may even say that in verse in chapter three, where it says, let us turn from our wickedness. Some of your translations may actually use the word violence there, um, which is another option there. But they're not being punished for idolatry. And I don't remember reading about Jonah having any idols necessarily, other than himself. So we're meant to kind of ponder, what did Jonah mean by throwing in idols as an unrelated, seemingly unrelated concept in the midst of his prayer? Is he saying that the fishermen were the ones who were, you know, following worthless idols and he's not? Was he referring to him? Self, well, he says that he's not like them. You got it. So those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice again. In other words, I'm not that person who, who worships those idols. So why did he throw that in there? So is he talking about his old self versus his new self? Where he was before he ended up in the depths of Sheol. Then I will. Yeah, he's also future tense in verse 4, is it? Um, I will look once more towards your temple. So he switches tense a couple times. So is it his old self and his new self and he's a changed man? Maybe. I'm not buying it. But maybe. Maybe that's part of what we want to, to capture. But this one's bothered me for a while. Because the Ninevites... I don't think it was talking about the Ninevites. I don't think it was talking about the, the sailors. But I want to read for you 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 13 through 15. Still the Lord warned Israel and Judah through every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and statutes according to the, the whole law I commanded your ancestors and sent you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. Instead, they became obstinate like their ancestors who did not believe the Lord their God. They rejected his statutes and his covenants and they and made with their ancestors and the warnings he had given them. And they followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. 
following the surrounding nations the Lord had commanded them not to imitate. When you take that phrase, worthless idols, the place that it's referred to, the group that it's referred to the most often in scriptures is the Israelites and how they followed worthless idols. And as we just read in Kings, it's been the message of every prophet (laughs) to let Israel know that they need to stop following worthless idols. In Jeremiah 16, God promises that exile is going to come to the Israelites because they have, quote, filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their abhorrent and detestable idols. This is part of the nation Israel. Perhaps, perhaps this reference is meant to remind us that this story is really about Israel and not so much about the fish and the prophet. It is a book of prophecy. Now, this is one that I'm still pondering. This is one that I'm still working through myself. How does this parallel what the nation Israel is doing? Well, it's interesting that this book, and David's going to cover some of this, I believe, next week, so I don't want to get too far into it. It's written to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. The Assyrians are the ones who are going to come and conquer Israel and take them captive in about 40 to 50 years after Jonah's prophecy. This is a pre-exile prophet who's going to save the people who will eventually be used by God to lead them off into exile because of their uh, idolatry and their abandonment of God and the breaking of the first commandment. So I don't think it's a mistake that Jonah threw in the idols. I think he's referencing the nation Israel as well. And he's reminding us that this is a prophecy about Israel as well. I'm still working through this one. So I'll be chewing on this for the next month or two, trying to see what other things there are. But I only have a couple more weeks before I'm supposed to share some of those findings with you. So I'll hold off on that for now. But um, that's just one that I think is, is meant for us to ponder and to think about because it's that abnormal statement that doesn't fit in with the rest of it. And you have to stop and go, why did he put that in there? For the mountains, it was to draw the metaphor. Of the, of the high place of God and being so far from God. It's to help you understand some of the metaphors of the scriptures and, and being distanced from God. This one seems to be different. So what's Jonah's response? We'll wrap up with that thought. So Jonah, God's the main character. I'm going to say the fish gets the, um, the award for the best supporting actor. And somewhere in there's Jonah, who's also one of the main characters, but he's really questionable as far as a character. Um, Where does he fit into all this? What was his response to the way that God dealt with him? He says, I will worship, I will sacrifice, I will keep my vows. Now, this is what the pagan sailors did. They caught on a little bit earlier than Jonah did. But let me just ask you, what's missing from Jonah's response? Remember, this is an upside-down prophet book. It sounds good on the surface. I've sunk down so low that I called out to God. I said, God, I'll do what you tell me to. But what's missing in that prayer? Repentance. There's none. There's no, I was wrong. There's no, I'm sorry. It's kind of like, all right, uncle, uncle, I'll do it. I mean, it's really what it's like. 
All right, God, you win. I'll do what you say. And you see from his life and his actions after this that he does it, but his heart is certainly not in it. There's no repentance. It's the opposite of what every prophet has called the nations to. They call him to repentance, and he won't do it. It's the opposite of what almost every psalm is that you'll read that talks about sin or running from God. The Psalms of David, they're all about repentance when there's something that's wrong. In Psalm 51, David writes a poem or a prayer to God. This is after he was unfaithful with Bathsheba, took another man's wife, had her husband killed, tried to cover it all up, was confronted by this prophet named Nathan, and realizes he's done wrong. And Psalm 51 is his prayer when he realizes that he had run so far from God that he needed to turn back. And his prayer in Psalm 51 starts out this way. Be gracious to me, God. According to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. David knew he had sinned. He was confronted by it, and he repented. Jonah knew he was sinning, told the sailors about it, was carried down to the depths in the belly of a big fish, and says, okay, you win. There's no repentance. There's no remorse. And that's meant to drive you crazy. There's something wrong with this prayer. There's something wrong with Jonah inherently in his responses. And I've read a lot of commentaries on this and they're all like yeah Jonah finally got right with God and made a turn around and it's like no I don't read that here I don't read it at all there's where in his prayer where in 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 Jonah 2 do you read about repentance Jonah is more to me like the Pharisees in the New Testament let me let me read for you a passage in the New Testament and tell me if you don't hear Jonah in this Luke 18 verses 9 through 14 Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I think Jonah was a lot like that Pharisee. Those who worship vain idols, they'll do this. But as for me, nope, I'm going to keep my vows. I'm going to offer up my sacrifices. I got this. I'm not like those other people. And yet when you look at it from our perspective, you read it and you go, oh, yeah, you were, Jonah, right? Oh, you're like totally like those people. And we see that, but we're meant to see that. It tells us about God, first of all, and his mercy. Do you do realize that in the midst of Jonah's arrogance and his unwillingness to actually repent, but his willingness to follow God, that God still spared his life and still used him? If that doesn't speak to mercy, what does? God spoke to the fish. Out came Jonah. 
That's the mercy of God. The fact that he was even saved in the fish was the mercy of God. But I think one of the questions we have to ask is, what does this teach us about ourselves? And when David and I were preparing for this, he brought to mind and this picture that, I, that really stuck in my head. You know when you're watching one of those um, action movies, and they've got the camera focused on the main character, and all of a sudden you see a red dot on him. You know what I'm talking about? What's that red dot? Yeah, he's a target, right? Somebody's got it. Somebody's painting a target on him. Not you, Mike. You're okay. So yeah, somebody's painting you. Somebody painting a target on him. They have that red dot, and you're like, oh no, you know, the target's on that person. You know, shots are going to get fired here really soon. And I think Jonah, this prayer is also meant to paint a target on us, and to help us realize that the bead is really coming on us to say, hey, am I like Jonah? How am I like Jonah? The prophetic attributes of this book are amazing. And they're meant to show us things about not just Jonah, and not just Israel, and not just the condition of mankind, and not just the big picture about God, but also things about ourselves. So when you read this prayer of Jonah, have you run so far from God that you thought that he could never, ever hear your prayers? Or do you know somebody that you think they're so far gone that God could never save them or hear their prayers? What does this passage teach you about God? Do you still think that you're not good enough for God to use? Well, you're probably not. I'm not. And yet God chooses, in spite of our imperfection, to use us to do his work. You see how many lessons there are? Just in this prayer, because you start by looking at who God is and how he reacted with his, with his prophet and, and the imagery that the prophet is giving us about the character of God. And it's like, and it points to God ultimately, but man, it sure does make us stop and go, well, if that target was painted on me, am I too proud to repent for the things that I've done that are wrong? Am I just going to keep running from God? Perhaps we would do well to consider one last psalm. At the end of Psalm 39, after David declares that God knows him and knows everything about him and you can't run from God's presence, verses 23 and 24, David says this, Search me, God, and know my heart. and Test me, and know my concerns. And if there is any offensive way in me, any offensive way in me, lead me in the everlasting way. As we confront God, may our hearts be in tune with allowing him to confront us, to teach us. And may we be soft enough willing to repent and to follow his lead. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would search us. Father, we are really good at pointing out the weaknesses and the flaws in others, whether it's the prophet Jonah or our co-workers, or our spouses. It's so easy to find the flaws in everybody else. But we pray, Father, that you would search us. I pray that you would search me. Show us the things that you want to fix and adjust in our lives. Show us the areas that we maybe have been running from you. 
teach us about the stubbornness and the rebelliousness that we have and teach us to be humble before you. We thank you that today we can celebrate your mercy and your grace, that we can be reminded of your sovereignty, of your control over all the earth. Father, though you command nature and it obeys, you give us commands and a choice. So I pray that we would be faithful along with the rest of your creation, be willing to trust you and to obey you. We pray for your name, for your sake and your kingdom. Amen. Well, that was a lot to cover. I appreciate you all sticking around. Next week you'll get David. It'll be a little bit easier, maybe. And he's going to cover all of Nineveh, so good luck with that. Um, we do have a special event that we're going to do this morning. We have two special events that we're going to do. Um, the first one is a baby dedication. So um, at, at this time, um, I'm going to ask Connor and Valeria and Bella to come up front. They're coming, they're making their way up. So um, as a church, we don't do infant baptisms. We believe in what we call believer's baptism, that someone is baptized after they've um, accepted Christ and made a profession of faith. But we do uh, practice infant dedications. And so we're really pleased to be able to do this today. Um, once you guys are up here, you can take off your mask because we've been quarantining together. So that would be totally okay. They can see your faces. Um, and, and the dedication of children is something that actually goes back thousands of years. The first dedication I could think of was Isaac on an altar where Abraham was told to sacrifice him. We're not going to do that today. Okay, I just want you to know. But it's in Genesis chapter 22. And in that, God was testing Abraham to say, Abraham, do you trust me with your child? And Abraham passed that test and God provided a ram. He didn't have to kill Isaac. Um, and we're really glad for that. Uh, the test was to see, though, if the parents were willing to trust God with their children. And I just want to say that that is a test that you will have the rest of your life. It doesn't just start at birth, but I promise you sometimes it even gets harder as they get older to trust God with your children. Um, I'm saying this to my son. Okay, I want you to know that, right? So... Um, and by doing a baby dedication, you guys are actually joining the ranks of people like Mary, his mother. Um, she actually took Jesus to Jerusalem and presented him and dedicated him. Luke chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given to him by the angel. And when the days of the purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And this is what, uh, and actually when he was there, he had several people pray over him, actually prophesy over him. Um, and uh, they did this in the temple. So part of this dedication um, comes from our understanding of the fact that, that God gives us children, that God is the creator of life. You two have created an awesome little girl. And when we recreate life, we are actually imitating our Father who created all of life. And it's easy for us to kind of take credit for it. But we're reminded very often that it's definitely the work of God. 
Um, so we understand that God, as the creator of life, has given you guys uh, a new life. It's incredible, isn't it? That. But every life that we have, every life, every child, is a gift from God, too. Matter of fact, Psalm 127, we'll read another Psalm today. Psalm 127, verse 3, says that children are a gift from the Lord. They're a reward from him. Now, I will let you know that there will be days you will have to remind yourself that children are a gift from the Lord. Amen? How many parents? Yeah, amen. That's right. But they are. They're a gift from the Lord. Um, so this morning, as we have our dedication time, uh, I'm going to ask you both a couple questions and give you a chance to respond. Um, so, Connor and Valeria, do you receive Bella with gratitude as God's gift to you and to your family? Yes, we do. <laughs> we do. To raise Bella in a way that God desires means that you need to not only trust him with Bella, but you need to trust him with your own lives and with your own family. And that you need to be committed to growing your marriage and not just growing Bella, but also investing in each other um, and in your relationship with God. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. And unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with sentries will do no good. Um, you can work hard, but unless God builds his house, it won't last. It won't be what he's intended. And so as Bella's parents, it's your responsibility and your great joy to be able to trust God and partner with God in your own marriage, as well as in parenting Bella. So will you make a covenant to strengthen your marriage relationship and to invest in each other as well as in Bella? Um, do you commit to making Jesus Christ the foundation of your home? And will you place your trust in God's grace for your lives as well as for your child? John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus says, a new commandment I'm giving you. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. This commandment of loving one another, we often put into a church context, but church is about relationship. And the most important relationship that you have is with each other, with God, and with your daughter. And if, if you are not loving each other, then you're not in a position to love the church. So you need to be committed to loving each other unconditionally. Now, I'm just going to apologize. You married my son. I know it's going to be more of a challenge sometimes than others. And you need to be committed to loving Bella unconditionally, the way God loves us. So will you love each other and Bella unconditionally as God loves us? And will you teach Bella what it means to be a follower of Christ and guide her towards him? We'll try. The fair answer. Now, church family, we do this as a church because we are a family. And Connor and Valeria stand before you as family. And it's our responsibility as a family to encourage them, to pray for them, to help them with this awesome stewardship that God has given them. So I'm going to ask you a question and let you respond. Church, are you willing to support this couple today? And if so, say, we will. 
Well, great. So um, this side gets babysitting Monday night and Tuesday night. And this side gets um, a baby dedication doesn't save anybody. It's not an act of salvation. It's an act of acknowledgement of God and of the life that he gives. And so we're thrilled to do this with you. Um, I'm a, like, for me, it's like, this is my granddaughter, which is really my first ever granddaughter. So I'm like so excited that I get to be the one who gets to do this one as well. So I'm going to ask if I can, if I can hold her now. I don't need the blanket. Oh, Bella. You need to see how beautiful she is. I need to do the, right? <laughs> I think she looks just like her dad. What do you think? So... So at this time, I want to pray for Bella, and I want to pray for Connor and Valeria. Father, we thank you so much for your amazing love. We thank you for the gift of life, for this gift that you've given Connor and Valeria. I pray, Father, for wisdom, and for understanding, and for love, and for grace for Connor and Valeria. That, Father, you would teach them how to love this gift that you've given them. That you would help them to remain faithful to you and to each other. That you would grow them in their marriage as well as parents and as well as their faith in you. And, Father, I pray for Bella. Father, this gift was given as a stewardship, and I pray that you would draw her to you one day she would get to experience the love and the grace that you have for her. Father, bless her as she grows. Help her to understand you, to know you, and to share you with the world you've placed her in. Father, make her a blessing to her parents and a blessing to you, we pray today. Amen. very much. David's going to come up and pray. I was going to try to get a photo of the Gage family on my phone so they could be here in, in photo. I don't know if they sent me one. They're supposed to. But uh, this week is the Gage's last week with us. So if you know Chris and Jess Gage and the boys, um, they are, they got ordered really quickly <laughs> and they're heading out really fast. So Heading out Friday. This would, would have been their last Sunday. They were here for a little bit earlier, but um, and normally we'd have them come up and, and embarrass them and you know have a prayer for them to see them off. But I made the mistake of warning them, and they they ran away and went home. No, <laughs> no. It, uh, one of the kids is not feeling well, so we'll definitely uh, pray for for that as well. Uh, so they tuned in from from home this morning. Uh, but we'll definitely miss them. I don't think there's anything else to announce. Nothing uh, coming up. Bills are playing at one. Go Bills. Um, so other Buffalo Bills. Yeah. <laughs> wow. 
hater. So in, uh, in seriousness, we do want to pray for the gauges, uh, even though they're not here. Uh, so And definitely keep them in prayer uh, as they are getting ready to, for the move this week. Lord, Heavenly Father, we just lift up the Gage family to you uh, this morning. Uh, Chris and Jessica and, and Gatlin and Samuel, as they prepare for the next season of their life, um, and all of the logistics that go into moving, I just pray that you would make it a, a smooth process, as smooth as it can be for them, um, that they would be able to get connected and plugged in quickly uh, after the move, uh, and throughout the whole process that uh, even though there's a lot of work and that sometimes, you know, can be frustrating, um, that you would just uh, keep their patience long, uh, and that, that you would use this time for them to grow closer together uh, as a family. Uh, and also, I just pray for health, uh, that the sickness would not spread and that, um, that healing would take place quickly uh, for them, uh, because I know that would just make the whole, whole process that much more fun if they all get sick. So I just pray for that as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have a wonderful afternoon.